The first thing I'd like to welcome you all to this evening's lecture. It's absolutely fabulous to be hosting you here. I'm Catherine Reshogi, I'm the Dean of Health Sciences, and I would like to say that is the most incredible faculty in the university. But before we begin the proceedings, um, I'd just like to pay my respects to the, um, Aore, the traditional owners of the land, the Gadigal people of the Aora Nation, and it's on their lands that the University of Sydney was built. As we share our knowledge, teaching, learning and research practices within the university, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of the country. That is serious, it sounds more serious, but actually I think it's a celebration. <laughs> So welcome to this, the third lecture in the 2014 series of, of Sydney Ideas Lectures that the faculty is co-hosting with the whole Sydney Ideas Lecture series. What we try and do is to take recent and emerging research. So Andrew and Tracy will be presenting what's happening now um, and make it available to you, the wider public, in a way that you can actually use tomorrow. So it has direct application. The work we do in the faculty makes an impact. It has a direct impact on your lives tomorrow. Tonight's lecture is a wonderful example of the real world impact of research and the way that our researchers partner with the health and leading health and wellbeing organisations. And on that particular note, I'd like to welcome Tracy, um, Tracy Adams, who's the CEO of Boys Town which truly is, you've probably all heard of Boys Town. It's an amazing organisation. Boys Town enables young people to improve their quality of life, actually the way they live their life, enabling, enabling them to achieve their aspirations through the services and the support they offer, such as Kids Helpline. But first, it's my great pleasure to introduce Dr Andrew Campbell. Now, Andrew um, has been, oh, he's been researching and teaching in e-mental health and child, adolescent and family mental health for more, than an, an, a, for more than a decade. So he was one of the early researchers in this area. And in fact, he's the first to be researching some of these areas that you'll be hearing about tonight. He's currently, he's a psychologist and he's currently a senior lecturer in the university's Faculty of Health Sciences. And he was the first psychologist in Australia to research and publish on the use of the internet for social fearfulness self-help. The first of anything is amazing. <laughs> he regularly consults for state and federal government bodies, as well as other organisations focused on youth issues, such as the New South Wales Centre for the Advancement of Adolescent Health at the Children's Hospital Westmead. So tonight, Andrew will be speaking about the future of e-mental health and in particular, an innovative project which is seeking to help manage young people's mental health um, issues using Google+. Who knew there was a real use for Google, <laughs> apart from, you know, <laughs> our memory and, and a bit of a Wikipedia? But there will be um, opportunities for questions and answers after the presentations. So I welcome Andrew to speak about Google Me Happy. Who knew? <laughs> Thank you, Andrew. I'd like to start off by 
thanking Professor Refshorgi for a lovely introduction and to thank the Sydney Ideas and, and Faculty of Health Sciences for hosting tonight. Uh, it's, it's a real privilege to be here. So thank you all for joining us as well for what is actually the uh, World Suicide Prevention Day as well. So it's, it's quite apt that we've got this topic on. Um, tonight I'm going to sort of walk through a bit of a, a story of how we came to this project what's happening with the project itself and sort of conclude what the next steps will be. A lot, of my, a lot of people might first think, well, Google, that's a search engine, and some of the, 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 the background behind this was, uh, was, was advertised as the internet. And I want to start off by sort of putting your heads in the right space before I get into the actual meat and potatoes of this talk, and that is that we're not looking at the internet. We're looking at a tool inside the internet, which is social networking. And it's been hailed for quite some time, some, some years, actually more than a decade, that the internet in total and all its magnificent avenues has great potential and now evidence to assist in first-line treatment of mental health. And now this project is looking at second-line support. So the, the space that I'm talking about tonight is literally management of mental health. A good way to sort of think about that is that, uh, I'm actually going to use a real example. My mother a few years ago broke her hip. Um, she went and had a hip surgery, and that's first-line treatment. And second-line treatment was she went to a recovery hospital and worked with wonderful uh, physiotherapists, rehab counsellors, and so on. So she looked at managing that problem and then adjusting her life to that problem. So tonight I'm talking about that secondary part of mental health, that part where you've sought initial treatment through a counsellor or through a psychologist or through a GP who puts you into the system. And then once that, that system starts helping you and you come out the other end, who's there to stop you from falling back? And that's what we're trying to do, how to, how to stop people from falling back. So with that, let me just talk a little bit about how social networking, and I'm going to use it interchangeably with the word social media, has been used so far for helping mental health. And we're focusing specifically on youth mental health, so young people aged 12 to 25. What we've seen so far, and a lot of great evidence is showing it's working, is that social networking, social media, is being used primarily to broadcast messages of services, service support, uh, first-line treatments such as online counselling or even face-to-face counselling, as well as giving education on the Medicare system which can be used for mental health in face-to-face -face treatment. We've got forum discussion boards which have actually been around since the 1980s. And for those who didn't know, yes, the internet actually was connected before Windows 95. It just, we didn't use it very much. And for what it was used for was really just, once again, broadcasting information. We didn't interact too much with it. But forum discussions today, in 2014, are being used very effectively by many organisations, and one in particular in Australia that does it exceptionally well is Reach Out. Now, though we also do postings of photo messages, everybody's seen Mad Libs and a few other things like inspirational photos. Just today alone on Twitter, the amount of photos coming up from the amount of people talking about messages of good mental health is, is phenomenal. And seeing an image of a well-known person talking about mental health is empowering, more empowering than just seeing a written message. And resource links. There's nothing better than sharing those links to where to get help and how to get into those services. But, Social media is not reaching its full potential. There's a lot of it that is not being used. One of the things we know is that it's not being used because we're worried about putting our data out there that could be used against us. So we don't want to put our birth date, we don't want to put our name, we don't want to put what our problems are on social media. The strange irony is, is that young people are already doing this. There has been countless 
Facebook pages and other social media pages put up by young people about their problems. Sadly, some of them have hit the media as actually putting up a Facebook page to say goodbye and they've committed suicide. Some put it up to share information not on good mental health, but on how to maintain the mental perspective they have. And one sad example would be that of anorexia. So we're seeing that when it is put up in social media on the social front, the real personal front, it's either being misused or not used appropriately, or perhaps, perhaps it's not connecting to the right services and from the perspective that we're coming at tonight, perhaps the services need to learn how to use the social aspect more rather than just the broadcast media aspect more. So what do we need to make this work? Well, we need, first of all, obviously, better security, better privacy. We need to make social media only searchable by those who are using it for treatment, by the treatment service, or by the, uh, the service that's providing the aided assistance. It's a bit of a, bit of a difficult one to get your head around. It's also a difficult one to explain, but I'm going to try and show that with some models in a minute. Secondly, and I think this is probably the most important point, we need the professionals in those wonderful services out there to actually know how to use the media properly for treatment and support. And at the moment, we're using it at the surface level. We need to get to a deeper level. And funnily enough, to do that, we need to go back to the beginning and look at how do we do psychological therapy and counselling face-to-face, both one-on-one -on -one and in groups, and take those models that already exist and move them to the social networking space. So if we can develop a successful model based on existing practices that are evidence-based, and we can deliver them to peer support and actually have the peers not only help each other but be monitored by professionals, then we're actually starting to maximise the use of social media. So let's look at a little bit of the background now of what we already know about youth mental health. It's very well established, and this research, unfortunately, has been repeated and shown to still be something that is not improving greatly yet, that one in three young Australians are going to experience anxiety or depression between the ages of 12 and 25. This figure, as I said, it's not changing too much at the moment. An interesting fact, though, is that two out of three young people have a social media account. Now, I'm using it in a very general term. I'm not referring to Facebook necessarily, but that is a popular social media account. We also see it as um, Twitter. We see it as many other types of postings, including Instagram, photo posting, Tumblr, and the list goes on. But tonight, we're going to be looking at a lesser known one. And I actually say that with a bit of tongue in cheek, because it actually is very well known. It's just not very well used, and that's Google+. One of the things we need to do immediately when young people are in trouble is try to engage them in psychoeducation. And most counsellors do this quite well, whether you see them face to face, over the phone as Kids Helpline provides and Lifeline and very other services that do telephone counselling, or online web services provide, which is links to help sheets. Psychoeducation tells them, hey, yeah, you may have a problem, but here's what you can do about it, and here's the services to help you. We need to engage them in early treatment, and the good news is, is most of us are already doing that in our practice. The real problems we're now facing are past that point of engagement. The first is keeping young Australians engaged. It's great to come in, and I'm talking now as a, a psychology practitioner, to see a client make that first step of going, I've got a problem, I need some help. They start the pathway to help through various treatment modalities. Sometimes it's medicine if it's a severe mental health case. Other times it's cognitive behavioural therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy, and other types of counselling modalities. But once they start getting better, 
they start thinking, well, I can cope by myself. But we also know from a lot of research that most, and I mean one in five, are likely to relapse within two years. So where do they go then? Do they start at the beginning of their treatment again? Or can they re-enter and pick up where they left off? Offering uncomplicated and inviting checkup support would be the next thing we've got to do. And you could do that by actually sustain, uh, building social network groups, and I'll tell you how we're doing this in a minute, that actually you can drop in and out of just to check on how you're doing with your counsellor and how other people are coping in their treatment. The third thing, empowering through peer groups about maintaining mental health prevention and fitness. This one's an interesting one because it could almost be two categories. The first category is actually getting people to get into the groups to explore their problems with other people's problems, very much group counselling model, so that they realise, hey, it's okay to talk about it. I'm going to put this into very simple terms. We, as individuals, very openly tell those we work with and even strangers, oh, I'm sorry, I'm not well today, I've got a cold. We can say that and people just go, no worries, you've got a cold, you're not feeling well. But how many of us casually say, I'm down today, I've got depression? We don't. It's not socially acceptable yet. And yet we're starting to promote that. By getting young people in groups to say, yeah, I am depressed, and these are the things I went through, can I hear your story, are they similar? And then finally understanding that what other people go through is the same as them, you're moving to the second level that I'm talking about at point three, which is actually promoting anti-stigmatization of the mental health problems that we are experiencing as young people. All right, confusing diagram time. <laughs> the top blue squares are currently the counseling approach at Kids Helpline and many other services and it works, and it's great, and it's something that should have been there for decades, but really has only been there for a matter of two, two and a half decades. We're looking at kids calling up Kids Helpline or entering through email or entering through the website to talk to a counsellor. And they do this starting off anonymously. They just want someone to listen to them. Once they engage with the counsellor, they realise there's options and choices they can make to help themselves. And that empowers them. That makes them feel like, I'm not alone, someone cares, and there's ways to get better. Then they can return to the service as individual needs. Now, a lot of the times, from what I understand from talking to many of the counsellors at Kids Helpline, is that people will call up and they want the same counsellor. That can't always happen. Certainly not 24-7, because the counsellors have a life. They go home, they sleep, they eat, they have families. So they get a different counsellor. And sometimes that can, not always, can deter them. The other side of it too is that they might always get the counsel they want, and they just plan it right. There's a little counseling stalking going on. And what actually happens is they develop an attachment and we need them to actually be self-motivated and self-directed. So we need to work with them. And to work with them, we need them to actually be experiencing other service provisions and other service choices. So what we've proposed is a new approach that we're trialling to a service model. Obviously, the first two red squares are exactly the same as the first two blue squares at the top. The green square is the same as the blue one at the end, but has another pathway. The other pathway is the opportunity to join a private and secure and monitored social network that actually has no more than 10 individuals in it. And those 10 individuals will be the same age and experience the same problems. So we're not just dropping them in a group of random strangers, although there is a stranger aspect, and I will come to that in a minute, 
but we are dropping them in a group of people that are going through the same journey as them at the same time in their development. And there's the safeguard, the safeguard that there's a person there to talk to, a counsellor that will check on their stories. Now, in those groups, the last two green squares, they can engage with other clients. They will do this anonymously. And I'll explain that in a minute too, of how we can do this and still monitor them. They will talk to them and form new relationships. At least that is what we're theorising. They will share stories with each other. They will play games, just like they would on a social network site like Facebook, play Farmville together if they wanted to. They can post inspirational stories, put topical photos up and videos, and engage in group counselling. And the group counselling aspect, which I've put in blue there, is the part where the counsellor sets aside a specific time in the week to get the group together to talk about how things are going and to assist them. Now, the last big square here, the accessibility and safety part, obviously the big one, the one we've got to look at to make sure they're safe and also to protect the counsellor as well. The first part is that clients are assigned a pseudonym. They enter Kids Helpline and they give their details first to the counsellor. The counsellor knows who they are. They're given a phone number at least and an email address. They're set up in this project with a Gmail account under their pseudonym. This allows them to access a circle that is monitored by a counsellor running the circle. They are entering a contract. The contract states that they are to remain anonymous, not reveal who they are to other people whilst in the group. Now, this is where the first hurdle comes up. What stops them from going outside the Kids Helpline social network group and telling people, hey, now that we've met in the group, I'm breaking my contract and I'm going to meet you on Facebook? Well, we can't stop that. But the truth is, and I want to sort of flip you back in the positive direction, is that without the monitoring, without the uh, avenue of going in anonymously to begin with, they're likely to seek out the wrong people on Facebook to begin with without going through this service. So we're doing it in the sense of while you're in Kids Helpline, stick to the Kids Helpline rules. When you're outside Kids Helpline, you're on your own, but nowhere here to help you. The social network is going to be monitored 24-7, safety instructions given to the members. The members themselves at times may be in the room with other people in their assigned group, and the council may not be there. Let's say it's two in the morning. Well, if one of the members realises that somebody else in the group is not doing too well at two in the morning, perhaps they're having ideas of hurting themselves, they are empowered to help them call a counsellor who is online. So the telephone counsellors at Kids Helpline are there 24-7. So really it's a case of move them from the social network back into the counselling stream that already exists. Point three, clients agreeing to remain anonymous in the social network. Now, I've already talked about this, but one of the things we want them to do is feel empowered to talk about anything. And the hypothesis, one of the hypotheses we're putting forward is that by able to talk about anything, maybe down the track in the study, they want to volunteer to reveal who they are and be mentors. Perhaps they would be peer leaders. But we haven't got that far yet, so I'm not putting the cart before the horse. We're just seeing how we look after those getting into the service. So what does it look like? I've been asked this on radio today. Describing this is next to impossible without a diagram. So I've taken the liberty of getting a few pictures here and sort of marking it up and comparing it to Facebook. And I know that there's a burning question in the audience of why aren't you doing this on Facebook? And that will be a question I'll answer in the next slide. The first thing is, is that Google Plus has a similar layout to Facebook. It has a stream where the counselor can post information, stories, comics, direct them to videos and so on, and they too can post. But the group is only 10 people plus the counsellor. Nobody else can see it unless they are assigned to this group. On the right-hand side, you'll see a web 
picture. Now, I'm going to excite you and then disappoint you all in one sentence. The exciting part is that we could, with 10 people, do face-to-face counselling. We really could. Telemedicine's there, it's being used already, but it's not in mental health. Why? Because of privacy, because of anonymity. We're not doing it in the study right now. We are not using video counselling at all. But the potential is there. At the moment, and this is a little snippet to why we're not using Facebook, Facebook has Messenger, it has potential to do some video, but not to the group levels that we, we might be able to do it. However, we can do chat, and the group counselling is done through the chat itself. The chat can also be saved and stored, and one of the exciting potentials later on, down the track again, is that some of this could be used for case management. Some of this could be connected to e-portfolio records for health. All of this is big pie in the sky stuff, but it's things that we could see a connection of useful therapy information that may be used for case management. Now, down the bottom here, we've actually got what the circles look like. When a child or a teenager signs up to Google+, and by the way, we're doing 13 and over for the study because Google itself and Facebook don't allow under 13, so we've kept it that way. They set up their circles, and these circles are completely independent of each other. Unlike Facebook, where you can still group friends and do postings, we found that a little bit difficult. We found this a lot simpler to drop people into circles. And it literally is click and drag, click and drag to each circle. All right, some burning questions time. Why not Facebook? Well, we could do Facebook. And to be honest, even some of the people coming into the study right now are saying, why not Facebook? The number one reason, and I apologize to anybody in the audience who's from Facebook tonight, the number one reason was that we found searchability problems. In other words, if I put in my name into Facebook and I have a Facebook account, if I haven't set my settings just right, it pops up in Google searches. I can find people's Facebook accounts, and we don't want that. Under Google+, we were able to quickly switch that off and make sure that it cannot be searched. Why, uh, sorry, what about ensuring user privacy? Well, one of the things we ensure is that they have control of their data. They can withdraw from the study at any time, delete their account, switch it all off, and it goes. Will parents know? Yes, part of our ethics clearance was actually to tell everybody who wants to be part of the study who comes in through Kids Helpline, hey, it might be a good idea to talk to your parents. The interesting fact, though, is that most kids at Kids Helpline wouldn't want that. So we did get ethics cl uh, clearance for those who would normally seek parental permission to understand in very basic language that, hey, this is a trial, it's not a treatment, it's here to support you, and these are the other avenues you go back to. Fortunately, ethics approved that, and just to go one step forward, the kids that are actually in this particular trial right now have moderate to low levels of depression and anxiety. We've eliminated anybody who had self-harm ideation, suicide ideation, and so on. Obviously, as time goes by, we show that there's evidence that this is working, we can push the boundaries a little more, but it's too dangerous at this point. We're just doing it with those who are already coping to a certain level and need a bit more motivation to keep coping. So, what if the technology changes during the study? This is one of my favourite points to answer. I've been studying the area of cyber psychology, the use of technology in mental health, since 1997. If we go back to the early days of online counselling, literally talking to someone in chat, not video, but chat, one of the things we found is that people can get bored of certain functions or find them too clunky after a period of time. And technological evolution has shown that if the functionality of something fails or doesn't work too well, it dies out within a year or two. Now, I'll give you an example of something that survived the trend of technological uh, 
extinction, and that is email. Now, email by youth standards is very old school, not very liked in some ways, but it is done through web counselling, and it's secure, safe, it's a legal document, and it's between two people. And email in the business world and the personal world has stayed there, regardless of the fact that it's not as dynamic and bells and whistles as, say, YouTube and other social media. But social media and social networking has also been there as long as email. This is where we've got to change our minds and think, but wait, Facebook came around 2004. No, social media has been there on social forums since the mid-80s, as I said back before. The problem about forums is, it's not that they're not useful, it's that they're threads and people can read them, lots of people can read them, and they're not secure at times, and they're not very dynamic. You can't post them, you can't control the information so much, and they're searchable and the list goes on. So what we're really seeing is that the technology of social media since 2004 has got better. We now need to harness some of the opportunities of this and move towards ingraining it into our health services. And funnily enough, if I use a counter comparison, we're seeing this already in health, the virtual gym social network, the uh, virtual social networks for different types of health disorders and treatment plans and so on. So if it's happening in the physical sector, I'm sure it can happen in the mental health sector. Is it safe from online predators and cyberbullies? Absolutely. This study could not go ahead if we weren't able to control it from outside particular potential uh, hackers, predators, and so on. And that's one of the things that was paramount to the study going ahead. And is it sustainable both technically and financially? Well, this is an unfunded study. We've been trying to get this off the ground for some years. Now we've decided we're going to do it without funding. We're going to get it going. And so far, so good. Obviously, we do need funding to get it bigger, to get more councils involved, to explore the efficacy compare it and so on and I'll talk a bit more about what we're doing there in a minute but yes technically we're doing it on a free platform financially we do need to explore the service reach and the service reach is people not the technology itself so here's the approach of what we're doing we developed a Google Plus peer counseling community which we've actually called buddy help now buddy is the mascot for kids helpline he's a friendly dog who basically says hey I'm here to help you and come on Follow me through these different avenues and we'll take you to places where you'll feel a little bit more secure, a little bit more in control of your problem. So we've put this together as a closed network. Closed meaning you can't search for this. And I challenge anybody who can. <laughs> but you can't find it. You have to be invited into it. We've recruited 13 to 25 years. Now, what we're doing is we're taking 40 young people. We've divided them into four groups. The four groups are 13 to 14 year olds, 15 to 16 year olds, so on and so on. And you might think, well, that doesn't account to everybody up the high end. The reason why we've left it on a larger span than the groups that are needed is because we actually want to see which groups are attracted to it the most. That could be the older set, could be the younger set. So we've got some flexibility to create those groups around the age group of their development levels. One facilitator per group, and the groups have a topic. It's around depression, sadness, or anxiety perhaps even both. Or it could be something that led you to having those symptoms. And the number one thing that we're finding is bullying. So obviously, if somebody's being bullied, they want to talk about how their mood's changing. We check them for levels of depression and anxiety as they enter the study. If they're at a clinical level, they stay with a one-to-one -one counselor until they get to a level of coping, and then they can enter the group. Or if they're just wanting a bit of support, a bit of a cheer squad, they could enter the group straight away. We're doing this over a three-month period from August to October. We might go a little bit further than that. And we're comparing engagement currently with just one-to-one -one counselling. Now, one of the things, obviously, from an ethical point of view is you would hate to have just the one-to-one counsellors not have a chance to get into this group. 
So what we've done is a wait list. Anyone who calls Kids Helpline goes into a wait list of two weeks, just one-to-one -one counselling, but at the end of the two weeks, they go into one of these groups. Some clients have been there for a lot longer than two weeks, and we've been able to give them a screen, see how they've been coping with one-to-one -one counselling, get their feedback on it, and now they're moving into a group. That doesn't mean to say they stop one-to-one -one counselling. In fact, we don't want them to. We want them to actually continue one-to-one -one counselling and be in the group, and that's how we're measuring the difference of impact, how they feel about self-esteem. So the hypotheses are that buddy help for depression and anxiety will encourage greater returns to kids' helpline. We want them to come back. We want them to feel there's a community that they've belonged to. We want to combine counselling with buddy help. Now, the studies I've done in the last five years have shown that the combination of one-to-one -one counselling with online therapy have worked better than just one-to-one -one counselling. This is taking the next step, that one-to-one -one counselling with group counselling online will actually be better than one-to-one -one counselling by itself. We're using some basic demographics. Obviously, when you're working with children, we don't want to blow them too much with a huge survey. We, we really want to get them to come in, answer some basic questions, and move into the group and get the experience. But we've asked for their age, their gender, and their postcode so we can get some basic demographics on where they are. We're using the Rosenberg self-esteem scale so we can understand where their self-esteem's at before the study, during the study, after the study. We're looking at the Revised Children's Manifest Anxiety Scale and the CESD or the Depression Scale for Children rather than some of the more adult scales like the Depression Anxiety Scale uh, 21 for uh, Lover Bond, who it's a fantastic scale and I really, really think it's a great one for adults, but it's just not appropriate for children. We've got a multi-dimensional scale for perceived social support. We want to understand if there's social support coming in just from their community and the community services they're accessing is equivalent to, better than or worse than what we're offering through Buddy Help. And lastly, a few open-ended questions. Always good to ask them, hey, what did you like? What didn't you like? Of course, we get some funny ones sometimes. Some people say, oh, look, I want more videos or I want this, I want that. And so we do cater to their needs a little bit, but ultimately we want them to drive the circles, not the counsellor to drive the circles. So I'm going to finish up now, and before I do, I just want to tell you where we're going and then introduce Tracy, who's going to talk a little bit more about the trailblazing and pioneering of Kids Helpline and why this service, especially from my point of view, and yes, I am biased, is the best to run this particular project. We want to complete the data collection for pilot write-up or from the pilot data by the end of 2014. You know, we really want to get it out into some publications. I'm actually doing some more presentations for the Australian Psychological Society on this in October. And hopefully from there, that pilot data will lead to the bigger part, a three-year study. Now, why a three-year study? Well, we're just scratching the surface on two levels. One, we're only looking at low-level and moderate cases, and we're only looking at depression and anxiety. There is a lot of mental health illnesses out there. It would be like doing a physical health study just on ankle sprains. It's not enough. We need to do more into cancer, more into multiple sclerosis, and so on and so forth, and mental health is the same. There's the potential here to look at this not as a one-size-fits-all, but that each model of care for each disorder, for example, anorexia, substance abuse, uh, suicide ideation, needs to be looked at slightly differently to the next model. So we need a three-year study looking at what it can be used for and what it can't be used for, because, I'm, as I said, I'm not saying this is one-size-fits-all. We want to publish those findings, and we want to drive e-mental health practice as policy. I want to conclude on this note. Mental health in Australia is still underserviced by the services. It's not that the services are doing a bad job, they're doing a fantastic job. 
but they're doing it with very little resources and they're not enough people in the services themselves, professionals, to reach the at-need area. And the at-need area, believe me, when Tracy gets up, she'll talk about what's falling through the cracks. E-mental health, online use of mental health services could change that. We need to use the resources we have and expand it through information technology. It's not about bricks and mortar anymore. It's actually about using the technology and the people we have. We need to do it safely, we need to do it responsibly, and we need to do it with an evidence base. And I believe Kids Helpline is the organisation that is already doing that and will continue to do that. With that, I'd like to introduce Ms Tracy Adams, the Chief Executive Officer of Boys Town Kids Helpline. Good evening, everyone. Thank you, Andrew. Fantastic as always. Can I just commence tonight by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land as well and pay my respects uh, to the elders past, present and future. I'd also uh, really like to acknowledge the Faculty of Health Sciences here at Sydney University who have really generously supported Kids Helpline by allowing Andrew to be involved. Uh, I'm sure we all know he's, he's a pretty great bloke and uh, certainly we appreciate it. And, um, and also to show my appreciation to the Black Dog Institute who are hosting Andrew as he undertakes this project, um, which I think we're convinced is going to be successful for us and I guess more importantly for the, for the young people who come to Kids Helpline. So Kids Helpline, we care, we listen, at any time and for any reason. And it's as simple and as complex as that. Kids Helpline is the nation's only free, private and confidential service for young Australians aged between five and 25. And it is made possible from our community. So Kids Helpline is predominantly supported by the generosity of communities right across Australia. Our counsellors are there for children and young people 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and no issue is too small nor too big. Young people connect with us on a huge range of issues, things like the challenge of changing schools, family relationships, how to make friends, and bullying. They also connect with us, however, in times of crisis as victims of abuse, young people struggling with mental health concerns and unfortunately far too frequently suicide-related issues. In addition to providing direct support, Kids Helpline is and intends to remain a strong advocate for young people, raising awareness of their needs and concerns. We are able to undertake this work because of our Councillor's ability to record non-identifying information at the end of in each interaction that they have with a young person who connects with our service. Such information has been recorded since we commenced the service and whilst the data collection systems have been changed, modified and enhanced, we have a significant amount of data by which to identify and highlight trends, issues and the needs of young people in our communities. A recent example of the way we undertake advocacy um, is the response that we've done for the National Children's Commission's inquiry into intentional self-harm and suicidal behaviour in children and young people. In 2013, suicide became the third most common focal concern 
directly stated by children and young people reaching out to our service under the age of 18. Self-injury and self-harm were the seventh most frequent concern for under 18-year-olds to the service in both 2012 and 2013. As a result of the submission that we made, Kids Helpline was invited to participate in the National Action Research Plan for Suicide Prevention, and we are the only organisation representing youth in that forum, which is really important because the risk factors and protective factors needed for young people are very different than the approach required for adults. So the collection of data enables us, in addition to our advocacy work, to also challenge ourselves and test ourselves on the quality and the integrity of the service that we actually provide. So counselling and support is provided at Kids Helpline by paid tertiary qualified counsellors, of which we currently have just over 120. Children and young people can speak to a male or female counsellor. They can arrange to speak to the same counsellor if they want to call back um, and to work on an ongoing issue. What we generally like to do, if we do have young people needing or wanting to continue their connection with the service, is actually introduce a second counsellor into the dynamic because, as you said, we can't have our counsellors there all day, every day. So it's really important to try and facilitate relationships within the counsellor group with young people. Counsellors are supported by on-the-floor supervisors within the counselling centre, as well as a team of clinical supervisors. Our clinical supervisors support the counsellors with case review, clinical debriefing, and with ongoing professional development. In addition to directly supporting our client group, counsellors also provide connections to other local agencies within the communities that children and young people might be ringing from. We have a very long-established referral database, and often a connection is formed with another agency by the counsellor actually making a three-way link-up to introduce the young person to make it easier for that connection to be formed. Kids Outline has a unique capacity to act as a safety net for vulnerable children and young people. The young people often reach out when other services may be closed and particularly reach out between those very daunting hours of midnight till dawn when they may be feeling particularly isolated and alone. This has become even more significant with the prevalence of young people using mobile technology. Many other uh, health providers, medical practitioners, med uh, mental health workers also provide Kids Helpline as part of their risk plan for young people. This allows young people to know that they, someone can be there 24-7 because often face-to-face -face services can't be there. So they actually include Kids Helpline on the risk plans that they establish. The confidential nature of the service is not only highly valued by young people, but they also expect it. Confidentiality has been rated as being one of the most important elements of the service um, consistently, really, every year that we've been doing our surveys. There is, however, a very transparent duty of care process in place, including call monitoring by supervisors and formal protocols with agencies, which enable counsellors to access the immediate assistance of police, 
ambulance and other emergency services. A comprehensive call and online contact management system records data used to find children and young people assessed who perhaps are at immediate risk. And in 2013, unfortunately, more than 1,900 such cases had to be instigated. So taking us back a little bit to the beginning, Kids Helpline was launched on the 25th of March 1991 in Queensland with a Queensland focus. And I think it's fair to say that I was there at the time we actually launched it. We never expected to receive 3,000 calls on day one. By 1993, Kids Helpline had expanded state by state to become a national service. And by October 1993, Kids Helpline had received one million calls. At that stage, it was just calls. Uh, Kids Helpline is, a is and was a free service from any landline in the country. There was a time when there were telephone boxes. I'm sure many people today probably don't recall the good old telephone box, but telephone boxes were common. And many, if not all of them, had Kids Helpline stickers and material made available. And to be honest, that was pretty much the extent of the marketing that we did. <laughs> and we still haven't been able to cope with the demand, so um, it is one of our challenges. Email counselling started in 1999, and real-time text-based chat web counselling was launched in May 2000, a world first. Online counselling for us was a natural progression for a service committed to being child and youth focused. Kids Helpline originally provided a service to children and young people aged 5 to 18. The age range was expanded in 2004 to include those aged up to 25. Contemporary research indicated that young people's transition stages can continue to the age of 25, and an acknowledgement that young people frequently struggle with the shift to adult services of whom they expected to utilise when they turn 18 and 19. We really felt that we had no other choice than to actually ensure that we were continuing to provide a service. Kids Helpline has always operated with a focus on early intervention, and this remains so despite the challenge of dealing with increasing amounts of counselling required interventions. In 2013, uh, through the support of Optus, Kids Helpline's launched Kids Helpline at School, a free program which allows Australian primary schools to invite Kids Helpline counsellors into their classroom via virtual mediums such as Skype. Teachers are free to pick a topic based on the needs of the class, the school, or things that might be happening within their local community. The, ses the sessions are aimed at promoting resilience and encouraging help-seeking behaviours in the young. We really want to ensure that young people don't reach crisis before they reach out for help. So, uh, as, as I sort of said earlier, Kids Helpline was the first um, agency in the world to undertake real-time web-based web counselling when we launched it in 2000. And there are challenges and advantages, and there continue to be challenges and advantages in that medium today. An obvious advantage was providing another medium which young people in increasing numbers were starting to engage with. 
There was also the advantage for young people for, of anonymity. Something, as I've already said, young people really do expect from the service. For the service, online provides an opportunity for there to be permanent records that provide opportunities for both client and counsellor review and reflection. The digital record also allows for in-depth research of the counselling interaction. Research and quality are really key principles of the service. But there are challenges. The online medium means that counsellors could no longer get insights of the young person's state of mind from voice pitch, tone and pace of speech. And this required the organisation to really focus on equipping and training and supporting staff to be able to handle the changing environment of which we were now operating in. For the service, the challenge has been how do we extend the amount of time allocated for web counselling? Whilst telephone and email are 24 hour a day, seven day a week, web counselling continues to be constrained from noon to 10 p.m. This simply relates to financial resourcing. Web counselling sessions take twice as long as phone counselling sessions and balancing demand between modalities continues to be a challenge within our current resources. For example, we still have about 30% of our telephone contacts not being able to be answered the first time a young person tries. We have excessive demand for web counselling. And so it is a challenge for us to continue to provide services such as extending web counselling. But we know that we're going to have to because web counselling has significant strong engagement. 51% of contacts to the web counselling service come from the 10 to 18 year old age group. There are proportionately more females who reach out to Kids Helpline via the web. And it'll be no surprise, but children and young people in major cities are proportionately more likely to make contact via web counselling. I think our regional and remote communities are still challenged by access and speed uh, through the internet. Young people contacting the service via web counselling are proportionately more likely in comparison to phone to make contact about mental health issues, relationships with friends, suicide related issues and concerns through self-injury and self-harm. While relationships with family and friends have been common concerns for young people, there is a distinct trend in the continuing rise of mental health concerns and its associated issues such as self-harming and suicidal behaviour. This is particularly the case for young people wanting to discuss their concerns via web counselling. Another big shift for the service compared to when we started uh, relates to how young people are connecting with us. When Kids Helpline was established, it was a deliberate strategy to provide a free service to children and young people via the 1800 number. Mobile phones were certainly not common in 1991, and they were certainly not common for children to have access to them. So we didn't really think about at the time young people not being able to access the service with anything other than a landline, that's what we focused on. But today, as we can see here, 70% of all calls to the service come from a mobile phone or a mobile device. Mobile phones have created an opportunity for young people to connect when they want and from wherever they want, and that's fantastic. 
However, it did produce a problem for us as calls to a 1800 number from a mobile phone is not free. And free service was one of the core principles of what we wanted to achieve. Optus is a long-term supporter of Kids Helpline zero-rated calls, which means that there's no charge on their network, and they did that about 10 years ago. But that still left two major providers whose network was charging callers for a call to Kids Helpline. And we knew that we had some young people getting a phone bill for $100 for reaching out to help, for help. And you can't control that because it's actually a charge to the individual that we as an organisation couldn't stop from happening. We um, really wanted to make sure that this had an increasing profile, so we undertook an advocacy campaign with the federal government, re the need for critical services. So we would believe that Kids Helpline, and there are others, Lifeline and other services, needed to be recognised as critical and for there to be um, a recognition that calls to those services should be free from a mobile device. Um, I'd like to be able to say that that was successful. Unfortunately, whilst there was acknowledgement of the issue, there was really not a lot of will um, to make legislation changes around critical services and connection to critical services. However, we were determined not to leave things there and undertook to engage directly with the other two telcos, um, who I'm happy to say did realise the value of zero rating and supporting young people to reach out for help, albeit with some assistance from the media and our community partners. We are once again, and have been for the last two years, in a position that all children and young people can reach Kids Helpline no matter what device they use for free. Ongoing support to young people has become a significant factor of the Kids Helpline model. And as you can see here in 2014, almost 70% of our counselling contacts have been with young people returning to the service. The relationship with the counsellor, confidence in the service, as well as the fact that young people have access 24-7 are significant contributors. Young people connecting with the service regarding mental health issues, both diagnosed and undiagnosed, continue to account for approximately 30% of all counselling contacts. This figure does not include young people seeking support regarding thoughts of suicide. In 2013, there were more than 9,600 contacts where suicide was the primary reason for contacting. This equates to 25 counselling sessions each and every day. And in addition, there were a further 16,000 counselling sessions in 2013 for young people accessing the service with, with issues such as self-harm or self-injury. To ensure that we meet the needs of young people utilising the service, we conduct an annual survey to assess their satisfaction. For those young people who agreed to participate in the survey, keeping in mind that it is confidential and young people value their anonymity, 86% reported that they would contact a Kids Helpline counsellor in the future if needed, and 94% said that they would recommend Kids Helpline to a friend. 72% stated that they had gained ideas and strategies about how to cope with their concerns. 
and 65% of young people felt they were more capable than before in relation to coping with the issue leading them to contacting us. To demonstrate how the components of Kids Helpline's counselling service can work together, I'd like to share with you a case study in relation to a young person who has been in regular contact with Kids Helpline for about a year. We'll call this young person Christine, um, and she first contacted Kids Helpline when she was 15. When Christine contacted Kids Helpline, it was by the web, and she explicitly stated that she wanted to reach out to someone but was not ready to talk by phone. She was articulate and could describe her emotions well, but she also stated that she felt very low about herself and had difficulty being around people and coping at school. The communication and text was a safe environment for Christine and a way of preserving her sense of anonymity and confidentiality while being able to explore her understanding of what was happening in her life. The Kids Helpline counsellor discussed strategies with Christine for her to cope with and counter her negative thoughts and be more comfortable around people. After building a rapport with the counsellor over 10 months, Christine revealed that she had thoughts about self-harming. As part of the process of discussing ways to cope, the counsellor provided a referral to the closest child and youth mental health service and also encouraged Christine to seek out her guidance counsellor at school. Soon after, Christine chose to connect with the counsellor at Kids Helpline by the phone for the first time. This opened up a new dimension to the counselling relationship and permitted a more easy flow of dialogue, including the use of humour. Christine's access is now equally distributed between web and phone, and she contacts Kids Helpline on a weekly basis. Her conversations now regularly include reference to friends and social activities with them, as well as her plans for when she leaves school. The conversations regularly have a focus on the future. She has negotiated part-time work and has negotiated support from her parents to study and work at the same time. While there are no doubt still areas of Christine's life she is working on, she has demonstrated a strong commitment to continuing the process. Since Kids Helpline was launched in 1991 and to the end of 2013, and this number will be ticking over as we're sitting in this room, there were 7,539,225 responses provided. We greatly value partnerships with academic institutions whose research findings assist in guiding our service delivery. This particularly applies when undertaking innovation projects. We believe it is not for young people to be relevant to us, it is for us to be relevant to them. And so we're really excited about what the opportunities this project has, what will be the next evolution of our service. Because at Kids Helpline we do believe in, we care, we listen. Thank you. Oh, shocking statistics, but fabulous work. <laughs> so I'm sure that there are many, many questions that come out of that. So this is a, a
time for you to ask any questions you like, clarification, to talk to Tracy and Andrew. So if you just want to stand up here. And while you're thinking of your question, can I just ask you, Tracy, um, do you, oh, we have a question, oh, no. <laughs> do you, uh, can you just talk about it, the, whether the kinds of issues young people have are changing since 91 to now, since you've been going, and the prevalence? I know you haven't measured that, but your sense of that, given that you're so close to the ground. Certainly mental health related issues has been, we've got a real trend happening here. And, um, and unfortunately in the last five years we've seen a much, um, I guess, a concerning trend related to suicide issues and young people connecting with the service in crisis. When we, um, I guess, planned and, and came up with the idea of creating Kids Helpline, it was really with the view that it would be early intervention. Let's make sure that we get to kids, make sure they're empowered, build resilience. But we have seen increasing trends around crisis. Um, those numbers there around duty of care, duty of care is rising every year. And so yes, we can see trends right from the day we started to where we're at now. And what the big trends are relate to mental health. Um, and the other components of that being suicide, self-harm, and really serious crisis interventions of duty of care. While you're thinking of your questions, um, can you tell us what we should be doing as a community for these young people? These young people are our future. They're very precious to us. What can we as a community be doing? Um, well, if you've got primary schools in your community, I certainly encourage them to come up with or perhaps contact us about the Kids Helpline at, at school because the whole notion there is raising awareness that help seeking is okay. It is totally fine, it's cool to ask for help. If you're worried, if you're feeling anxious, and what we've got to do as a community, I think, is really establish the credibility of help seeking with young people. We still have significant numbers, particularly young men in our communities, who do not reach out for help. The prevalence of help seeking still in a service like Kids Helpline is overwhelmingly girls and young women. We know that young men need help and when they do connect with the service, it's frequently on very serious issues. We need to have these conversations. We need to be encouraging it. We need to happen in our homes, in our schools, in our communities. And I think encouraging, supporting, and showing people that help seeking, that these counsellors, and one of the things when I was in a, a school in Melbourne um, for a kids' help at school session, the kids loved it. This counsellor was a real person. She was funny, she spoke with them. It broke down a lot of those barriers because I think unfortunately there's a context. Children don't necessarily have an image of a counsellor. And when they see this young person who chats and laughs and shared ideas with them, they just, they loved it. And I think it's getting more of that, getting more of an understanding about what these people can do and why they're there. Yeah, I'm wondering how much leeway um, counsellors working for Kids Helpline have in responding. I I'm sure you follow a person-centred therapy approach and um, 
Do you find that some counselors want to use acceptance and commitment therapy or other approaches, and is that okay? Um, recently, we had a, a session with the counsellors uh, for this project, and you're absolutely right, the person-centred focus therapy is, is the model to basically say to the, the client, well, you know what, you're in the best position to decide what's right for you. Here's your choices. <laughs> you know, the acceptance and commitment therapy, mindfulness and so on, really is a model that can't really be done I think as well in one session of counselling and it needs extended use and I think a lot of tools, having done it myself in, in clinical practice. So I think from the counsellor's point of view, most of them stick to the, the, the person-centred focus, but I think using web counselling and using social networking, the skills of mindfulness and, and the tools that are out there to control the anxiety and depression or other particular problems they have offline, away from the counsellor could be used. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, um, I just have a question about the Google Forum community thing. Um, in terms of moderation, um, you said that uh, the councillors will be there some of the time and obviously they can't be there 24-7. What kind of moderation happens out of those hours and will the young people be trained to moderate each other? Okay, the answer to the first question is you're right, there is moderation outside of hours, but it's not by the same counsellor. So we've got a dedicated counsellor to the group who does group counselling on their shift. And then when they go home, other counsellors check in. So there's, on, there's a real person monitoring it. And we're also uh, looking at, at the sense of key words uh, that might come up that are triggering issues. So if we see self-harm, suicide, I can send a flag up through the system. The, the, sorry, what the second question was? Um, will the young people be trained to help moderate each other? Okay, they're not trained to, to help moderate each other. That's not the focus. The focus, however, is just to be a friend. So if they see somebody that might be saying something like, uh, I want to hurt myself, I'm using a very basic example, then part of the entrance into it was that they're, they're told, get them on the phone. You know, so we, will they be taught what to look out for with, other, with the other young people? Really, it's a case of in the, in, in when they first enter, the education they're given is about themselves. But obviously, as they learn that, it'll transfer to the same people in the group because they've got the same problem. So that's, that's how it works. Hi, I, um, I heard you say that um, all the councillors are actually paid and I was just wondering um, if they would sort of expand and um, sort of the service would be able to cope with a lot more if it followed what Lifeline, Salvo, Careline do where you actually have volunteer councillors who pay for their own training like you might pay $300 to do an, a really intensive um, course and um, under a sort of um, guidance you're trained, how would that work out with, um, as you expand, like even using university graduates um, mm. who might be willing to do volunteer work? Um, yeah, I just wondered if it would go down that pathway yeah. at all. And um, yeah, one of, the, one of the genuine costs is the fact that we pay, we pay our staff and they are all tertiary qualified psychologists or people in that particular field. 
I guess one of the conscious decisions that we made when the model was established was to provide, uh, I guess, certainty of the amount of staffing that we would have. As we can see, we're getting a number of young people where case management has become very much part of the model. And um, I, I totally respect the other service providers' models and how they operate. But I think it's really something that we believe in, that we want young people, if they do need case management, if they're going to be coming back to the service, they can actually access the same person. If not the same person, someone else has been introduced to them. Um, I guess too, as we're dealing with more and more complexity around young people, like we're seeing increasing issues around mental health, quite serious issues, uh, we, we've made a decision that we believe that we need to have the level of, um, I guess, uh, commitment skill and by paying our staff the expectation that we can have in them and that they can have in the service um, allows us to, I guess, have the, the integrity of service that we want from our model. That's certainly not to suggest that other people's models aren't appropriate for the service that they produce. And um, yes, the biggest factor to our service delivery is how is the wages bill. It's, that's just the reality and that is our model, yeah. Um, there's a lot of apps out there um, aimed at fostering young people's safety and well-being. Uh, some with an evidence base, many with not. I was just wondering if any of those resources are being incorporated into that phase five of the proposed service model in terms of, you mentioned sharing stories and playing games, but do you think there's potential for utilising some of those? It's a really good question, thank you. Um, yeah, there is definitely consideration for that. The the very blunt answer is we don't have any money for that yet. <laughs> the idea of incorporating the same things they would do on their ordinary social networks accounts is exactly the same. We don't want it to be too different. We just want it to be a supportive group of people that they have something in common that they can talk openly about and do the same activities. I think it's no different to anybody just wanting to see their friends and being able to talk about it doing an activity. And it's one of the questions I got from the councillors when I first started there was, great, you open up this circle. What do we do in it? Well, essentially you do exactly what you already do. We've just got to make sure that whatever we do do can't reveal privacy issues about the person doing it. That's it. Yeah. Um, having these online services is really fantastic, but one of the issues you mentioned at the very beginning is the stigma of people having mental health issues. So the, the question really is, um, and, and hearing you talk about people being wanting to have their you know, confidentiality, they're not disclosing things, having peer groups, but they're really discussing issues with people that have like issues. How, how is it really addressing the, the social stigma of having a mental health issue? Um, you know, because it seems like people are still uncomfortable in talking to not their colleagues on, on a cyber sort of world, which most youthful people live, but in a more social you know, world with a heterogeneous mix of people. How do we overcome the how do we overcome the the stigma of, of mental health? And maybe it's what Kathy was saying. It's maybe it's not things that they have to do or things that you need to get them to do. But you know, society accepting that. How do how do we de how do we deal with that? Two answers. Okay. Not at the same time. Not at the same time. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. That was. I mean, that's the million-dollar question. <laughs> that, that's it. How do we get? Yeah. <laughs> You know, how do we break that stigma? 
The only answer I've got from the evidence base we've seen in, in moving towards talking about it publicly has been a stepped approach of first, get the confidence to deal with your problem. And that's the first step. The second step is being able to talk to others who are going through the same experience so you don't feel alone. And the third step is make changes in your life that empower you further to hopefully make changes for others. That last step, that's the part that I can't tell you. And I've been practicing as a psychologist for more than 10 years and I, I still don't know how to get a client say, I have depression, I'm better, now I want to help other people because it's no big deal. I, I wish I could answer it. <laughs> Perhaps with a lot of the young people that, that contacted the service with the counsellors, the counsellors are defi defining in the data collection process that they're related to mental health issues. The young person themselves often doesn't use that language, they'll talk more broadly and so the notion of perhaps it being an undiagnosed or just something that they are worried about in themselves, how come I feel this way, how come I'm anxious, how come they're not relating that necessarily with what they think of as a mental health issue and so it's really about how do we inform people and perhaps try to break down the stigmas that still are attached to people using that type of language but frequently young people don't necessarily associate what they're feeling to a mental health issue as well and, and I think we tend to do that in the data collection that we undertake. Uh, yes, so this is a question regarding uh, information. So now uh, there's so much information available uh, through the web and I just wonder um, if your counsellors are having to spend more and more time dealing with misinformation um, and myths or whatever because there is so much that's out there and uh, I wonder if that is an issue that you, you have to uh, deal with. The Kids Helpline website itself has been structured for children, teens, grown-ups and adults and we actually have a lot of information on there, so tip sheets and information packs. Um, and so, yes, you're right, people are going online and perhaps trying to get a lot of information. We actively promote the Kids Helpline website wherever we can, in schools and communities with other agencies and health providers, so that we can at least, if people are looking for information, because we have a lot of parents who contact Kids Helpline who want information on how to support their children who are worried about a child's behaviour. We try to use all of the data, all of our experience, our clinical team actually producing materials that live on at least our own website and try to try to drive people to that site where we have some confidence that the material that they're going to get is genuine and can add value and if necessary also then show them who they can reach out to if they do need support. But yes, the counsellors frequently do raise the issue of perhaps young people connecting with advice that um, would not be helpful to, to a young person nor indeed helpful to establishing their health and well-being. Well, first of all, congratulations to you both on fantastic work. Uh, I'm interested and pleased to see that the service is extended to the 25-year-olds, but I wonder whether there's a problem now with the name in terms of attracting uh, that older age group. And I wondered if you'd had some thoughts on how that might be addressed. 
Yeah, so absolutely. When we started, it was Kids Helpline. It made perfect sense. We actually don't really have a problem attracting the older age group. We, we've continued to see growth in that um, 19 to 25. I think it's largely because of the credibility that the service has had. And young people now, uh, because we've been going for almost 24 years, have grown up with the service. They understand it. But it is an issue we're cognizant of. Does Kids Helpline actually provide the level of recognition and even just shortening it to KHL might be a good way of dealing with it and that's the sort of thing that we're testing and looking at as we progress because in the primary schools Kids Helpline makes perfect sense. In a university forum where we've got a different client group they'll be saying you know what the so you know we're very aware of that and and often we will shorten it already down to KHL and I think it's really perhaps um, an old timer like me that's been in the service for such a long, you know, we tend to continue to use the term kids helpline, but more and more frequently KHL is a term that we're using. Yeah. Thank you. And I just, I think, oh, wow. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> sorry, Cathy. Um, so my understanding is that counsellors through KHL usually provide one-on-one -on -one counselling. In terms of transitioning to group online counselling, what have been some of the counsellors' experiences and what kind of implications do those experiences have for further development for counsellors, do you think? Uh, thanks, Swan. <laughs> it's my PhD student, who's also doing a topic on counselling. Um, the answer is that the counsellors themselves were very open to group counselling, but the transition from one-to-one -to, -one to group was something we had to work through, and the sense of getting the, the client themselves prepared to do it. So at the moment, it's a volunteer basis. The client decides whether or not they want to try it. The counsellor then wants to know, well, how do I manage a group? How do I get them engaged? How do I keep them safe? And that's what we've been working on with them in this project. So behind what we've been developing tonight is a counselling program. And that program, in a way, is evolving because we're getting counselling feedback of, hey, I've got an idea. I'd like to try this. Do you think this would work? And we're building off an existing group counselling model that's out of the United States that's been done before. So it's not a case of we've just created something out of thin air. We've got an evidence-based platform for it as well. Okay. Yeah, final question. Thank you. Yeah, yeah hi. Um, I'm just wondering if there's any... Uh, I mean, Kids Helpline's been around for a while, so is there any awareness of... Uh, any correlation between, say, the higher emergence of anxiety and issues of, uh, um, I guess, mental health issues brought about by social media? And is there any um, relationship, say, with older people, say, 25 plus, um, and any um, relationships with, like, attachment? So um, a whole-of-life approach where some of the issues we might be seeing with kids now are actually um, potentially attachment issues, which, if they're not addressed as an adult and, and sort of within the adult phase, they're going to reproduce those sort of problems in the family home. So things like anxiety and, um, I don't know, uh, poor mental health or, you know, personality issues and stuff like that that can bring about mental health problems. Because to me, maybe I'm wrong, but I, I think of anxiety sometimes as, as co-related to like attachment. So what's happening in sort of 25 plus? How are we educating people there? I'm just curious, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> so. Yeah, um, I suppose we've gone through having, we went from 5 to 18, 18 to 25, and we do have some of our client group who would like to stay connected with the service who, who are becoming um, over the age of 25. 
Um, what, what our council has really tried to do there is form connections with other service providers um, and, and make sure that there is support in transitioning because equally we don't want to establish a too stronger attachment with a councillor on an ongoing basis. So Andrew was talking about the model of dependency. It really is about building the resiliency in the person and leveraging local providers, local specialists to continue to facilitate support to people because the referral database is primarily to do that. The Kids Helpline counsellor can be there 24-7. But we do want to form local connections to local providers who can be there on a more, I guess, ongoing basis if required. The dependency totally can't be to Kids Helpline um, for, for their total service delivery. For some young people, they'll come in, use the service once, we don't hear from them again. Fantastic. They may choose to go to a local provider, or it may be something that they've been able to establish a coping mechanism, understand their issue more, and they feel better equipped to actually cope with things when they arise because of what they've worked through with the counsellor. Well, thank you very much. Could we all just thank Tracy and Andrew? It's just such impressive work and it's so meaningful and it's real and it's happening now and it's changing kids' lives. What could be better than that? It is just fantastic. Thank you. I'd like to thank all of you for coming along tonight as well. It's, and please stay and we've got food and drink and continue the conversation with um, Andrew and Tracy because I know, I know not everyone feels comfortable asking a question in this kind of forum. But what I had just forgotten is I have to tell you about our next Sydney Ideas lecture, and it will be just as good as this one. So it's, the next one is on the 22nd of October, and it's Professor Sharon Kilbreth, and she's talking about lymphedema and breast cancer, challenging the myths. So it's just as important as kids' mental health. And we'd love to see you all here again, and thank you for being such a wonderful audience. <laughs> thank you.